Hello everybody. Welcome back to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. In today's episode, we will be resuming the story of Masquerade and the Hunt for the Golden Hair, a twisty-turny tale. If you haven't already heard episode one, I recommend you go back and have a listen now. We're about to resume the story. If you recall, at the end of our first part, the golden hair had just been discovered and the hunt that had gripped the nation was finally over. But there was more to come, more to come in this story. So listen on to hear me, Ruth and my guests, lovely Katie and lovely Rob, talk about the next part of the tale. Enjoy. We're going to start part two of the story now. Rob Levy has brought up a drink. It came in a jug, exciting, and has been distributed in the manner of a punch or pims. Now this looks like lilt. Oh, um, oh, that's not a criticism. I, that is a, I love lilt. No, no, no. No one ever criticises me by comparing things I make to either lilt or Fanta. That's very popular. <laughs> Tell us about Fanta, the drink. So when I said to my friend and yours, Alex Anemi, I have to make a drink themed of Catherine of Aragon. Well, that was one element. One element. That you could you pick up that, on. And yeah. um, the first thing that Alex Anemi said was, oh, Catherine of Tarragon. I don't know why he said that, but oh, he just God. immediately said that. So I was oh, like, God. okay, okay Tarragon. <laughs> you could... told me earlier that this wasn't a pun drink. Well, it, isn't, it doesn't really result in... <laughs> the end result is not a pun. Um, so <laughs> but this... the jumping off point may have been a so pun. So this reminded me, when he said Tarragon, this reminded me of a time when... As a fan of Foster's, and at the time in about 2018... Just an interjection. If is you this want Foster's to... and Lilt mixed together? Because I'm really not happy. <laughs> if you want to hear more about Rob's love of Foster's, go back and listen to our Tom Hickathrift episode and you can hear a bit more about Rob's love of Foster's <laughs> and <laughs> other, other flavourless lagers. <laughs> so I used to be a big fan of flavourless lagers. And um, <laughs> when I worked in the craft beer shop that I worked in in 2018... They had a beer that was made by Seven Sisters Brewery, which had a very kind of brilliant sort of, you know, that kind of very kind of simplistic medieval drawing of a face that's almost like a a modern cartoon. Very, very simple. Like an etching or... It looked like an etching of Mm. these seven women on their can. And it it was called Out of Time, the beer, and it was Honey and Time... Pale ale. Okay, sounds all right so far. And when Alex Anemi said, oh, Tarragon, I said, oh, it looked like that honey and thyme pale ale. So what I've brought here is... Um, I can smell the thyme. I just sniffed it. Yeah, God, you go. gorgeous there you go. Oh, so Now you're right. I can. I got worried about tarragon, but thyme no. is fine. So thyme is lovely. It's, it's, it's like roast chicken, but in a drink. That's tarragon! Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have thyme with my chicken. Other herbs are available. <laughs> it's thyme-muddled honey mead. Oh, with very fancy pale ale by Pressure Drop from North Tottenham. Oh wow! Okay. I like your and... use of beer in cocktails. Always is interesting. Yeah. Have you have Modern. you tested this? No. He's never tested. What have you met, Rob? He's not <laughs> tested anything. I, I only thought about this this afternoon. Oh my goodness! So tell me again. It's it's honey mead. Honey mead muddled with fresh thyme and an ale. 
Topped up with ale, with pale ale. God, I would not have thought this would be nice, but it's quite nice. I really like the time element. It's really unusual. I'm Mm. on board with the time. Do you have a name for it? Well, the beer that I'm seeking to emulate was called Out of Time. So something like that, some pun. Well, you're out of time if someone else has found the hair. Barker and Rousseau were out of time. Mm. They were out of time. We are not out of time. We are timey. I'd say three good drinks today. Should we return? So, Ken Owens, he's a bad one. Ken Thomas. No, not Ken Owens. We love him. Ken Thomas. Is Ken Owens a rugby player? I should have known. Sorry. We're actually going to have a small diversion before we return to the story of Masquerade. I thought, why not hear a bit about the legacy of the book Mm. in terms of the rise of puzzling books? Because you can imagine Jonathan Cape had a massive hit on their hands. Yes. They were raking in the cash. You can imagine the other publishers were like, come on, how can we get in on this act? We want to get some puzzle book money. Everyone's bearing a bit of gold. Exactly, Katie. So the the publishing industry went into a frenzy for what became known as armchair treasure hunts. So each publication house thought, how can we get some puzzle pie? Now, some of it did steal quite in terms of the, the treasure. So they did in, the same thing. Well, so here's some titles. There's Golden Key, published in 1982. In Search of the Golden Horse, 1984. <laughs> I mean, that... It doesn't... They haven't tried. No. No, well... Someone's gone, what's another animal? I don't know, It begins with an H. What's about... It's not a hair. It's a horse. What about 1993, On the Trail of the Golden Owl? Oh, that's Um... good. I like owls. But owls do have that mystery in a way that horses... There's not much mystery about horses. Horses don't. Horses (laughs) are just in fields. But owl is a good... And also begin with an H. Okay. And actually, Kit Williams himself did another puzzle book, but it was a bit different. This was published in 1984, and... Initially, the book was published without a title. Kit Williams, it said, and it had a picture on the cover of bees, lots of bees in a beehive. Like the Beatles, the White Album is just called The Beatles. It doesn't have a name, I think. Similar to Metallica, what became known as mm. the Black Album. Ah, and it's just called Metallica. It just it doesn't, doesn't have, a have a, even a name. It just Very has cool. the covers black and then if you look at a certain angle, there's a, like a little snake on it. That's interesting because... Jay-Z. Not a little snake, like a, a hardcore metal snake, sorry. Yeah. A tiny little snake. Like a snake <laughs> that is like second to being dragons as the most metal of all creatures. Yeah. Oh, wow. Because um, Jay-Z's got an album called The Black Album, and I thought that that was a very clever play on the White Album, but it's all, it had already been done. Metallica didn't call it The Black Album, but yeah, it was all right. black cover and it just... Uh, so Jay-Z's album, I think, album. is actually called The Black Album. Mm. Okay. David Gray album. David Gray. No. Greatest. <laughs> uh, Danger Mouse. You know the DJ oh, yeah. Danger Mouse. By creating the Grey album, which was taking music from the Black album and vocals from the White album. What? What? Oh, what the Black God. album by Metallica? No, by Jay Z. Oh. oh. Disappointing. Or, or as we call him Jay Z. <laughs> <laughs> the concept of the second Kit Williams puzzle book was very different. There was not a hidden treasure, but the idea was that the whole puzzle of the book was to reveal the title of the book. Oh, So everyone can be a winner. And then everyone who worked out the title of the book, Kit Williams said he wanted them to create an artwork or create something that would represent the title of the book they'd discovered. And he would go a year and a day after publication, he would judge the best one. And it was on Wogan. Oh. He's a good one, this kit with him. I quite yeah. like how it's all, so much of the story as well as these kind of now defunct British TV programmes. Whenever, you know, when there were only three channels or later yeah. four channels and it was like, you know, everyone was watching Omnibus or Nationwide or Wogan and that was such a totemic thing. Whereas now that notion again is a bit absurd, but... 
And the title of the book was was The Bee on the Comb. And so lots of people were able to work out what the title of the book was and they created artworks of their own. And the, the winning artwork was deemed to be a special cabinet that someone made that when you open the cabinet, it revealed like a creation of a bee on a comb. And then so not they... someone who'd stuck a load of dead bees to a comb. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you'd have done? I'm not, I'm not saying definitely. <laughs> Isn't that where your mind went first? My mind didn't go anywhere near it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, then, and then the winner was um, given like a golden bee statuette that Kit Williams had made. Mm. So it was quite, he, he didn't want to just repeat the same thing. He wanted to do something different Yeah, because different he's original. He's not going, oh, yeah. I've done find the hare, find the horse. He's going, mm. oh, no, we're going to do But also better. what Kit Williams has done there is he's also found another animal which, is, which is, has a kind of mythical, yeah. mm. there's something about the bee, isn't there, which is, which is vaguely mythical. And also inviting people to make art. Exactly. It was a lovely project, a lovely project. My favourite example of a armchair treasure hunt book is an American book called The Secret. This was published in 1982 by Bantam, a US publisher. It was created by a man called Brian Price and he conceived not one but 12 treasure boxes to be buried <sighs> at Americans. various... They've always got to go one up, haven't they? Various... There are 12 <laughs> treasures. It's a big country. That's true. They'd be buried at various points all around the US. The treasure boxes themselves didn't contain a treasure as such, but if you found one of the boxes, Brian Price, uh, you could write to him and he would exchange it for a precious jewel. Oh, wow. One box was found in Chicago, 1982, an early success within just a, f- a few months of publication. Very good. Another was found in Cleveland... 2004. Not so good. That took Um, a while. One came to light somewhat by mistake when a park in Boston was undergoing renovation in 2019. Fucking hell. Are you going to tell us there's still some out there? The other nine puzzles have never been solved. No, that's brilliant. Brian Price died in 2005, leaving no information about solutions to the puzzles or where the boxes were buried. So we could solve a puzzle tonight. The, the problem is that the landmarks or things that were referenced in the puzzles will probably not apply anymore because mm. the, the you know the architecture or there'll be developments and the land will have changed. Things will be so different that it's very likely that these boxes will be never like, be, be found. Like, go to Tammy Girl on Regent Street. <laughs> <laughs> it's not there anymore. The one, you know, not that one. The one opposite the Pizza Hut. Yeah, the Pizza Hut and Parker's Pizza. First, buy a sausage roll at the baker's oven. <laughs> And then when you've completed four rounds of laser quests. He didn't leave any information about where the, the puzzles were. And there were some other ones as well, but where things haven't been revealed, but somebody's, you know, written a letter that's hidden with a lawyer that does say the correct solution to things. So there's a hope of, of solving things. Wow. But this, the secret, there's these nine treasure boxes, which more than likely will never, <laughs> will never see the light but of day. But when they found the one... When they were doing the building work, they still knew what it was. Yes, they it did. Didn't yeah. just get crushed by. And a... it was a big news story. And, yeah. um, and the the estate of Brian Price have said that they will still honour anyone that is found. They will still honour the mm. idea that you will win That's a, a prize. Amazing, isn't it? In, in the era of the internet, that there are still mm. unsolved mysteries because like, what the internet kind of promises you is that all questions can be answered. You know, everything is out there if you yeah. just Google it right. So we can now go to part two of the masquerade story. So we've had a little diversion, the legacy. As of the discovery of the hair, as far as the publishers, Kit Williams and the public were concerned, the story of masquerade was over. But there are more twists to come in the complicated tale. Let's twist again. (laughs) 
In November 1988, so six years after the hair had been unearthed... Which, by the way, can I just briefly sidetrack to say, 1988 is the first year I can remember knowing what year it was. Okay. I can, I can remember thinking, wow, eight, 88, it's 88. This won't happen again mm. till 99 or some mad future year. <laughs> and to you, that as a small child, that seemed incomprehensible. Yeah, that was like, I'll, I'll be, you know, 19 by then. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. And now we're 40. It was announced in November 1988 by the auction house Sotheby's that the precious hair of masquerade fame was going to be put up for auction the following month. Oh, see, that's you can't that, you can't win something that exciting and beautiful and then just sell it. But well, that's what it's I was a saying. few. It's a while later. It's a, six years later. Didn't so just smash it Ken in the auction Lodge first. Ken enjoyed off. it, and now he's <laughs> flogging it on. That's all right. It transpired that a few years earlier, Ken Thomas, who found the hair, had started a games company called Hairsoft, and he used the hair itself as collateral against a bank loan. Unfortunately, the company had not been a success. He hadn't been able to repay loan and therefore the bank called in their security and the hair was going to be auctioned to raise the money to pay the loan back. I mean I'm not happy about it but that's slightly better than him just going oh I've got this hair lying about my house I'm gonna sell it. The day came in early December now this next bit's sad so just prepare yourself I know Katie's Katie I just feel like Katie's gonna be really upset so I just want her to get ready. I'm having a swig of time beer. The date of the auction came around December 1988 Kit Williams himself turned up to bid in an oh. attempt to win back, to buy back the hair that he had created. He dropped out of the bidding when the price reached £6,000. The final selling price was £31,900. Which in today's money is... Oh, dear. More. £18 trillion. An anonymous bidder had been successful. Oh, that's um, really and sad. And the hair went off to Fucking its new bids. home. Do we know who? Where is it now? Miss Anonymous. Anonymous what? Anonymous is still to this got day, it. The treasure hunt is back on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the story still doesn't end there. Jesus. Sorry, Vin. <laughs> Sorry, Vin. He leapt up because I shouted. The auction had put the hair back into the news and scandal was about to erupt. Oh, Ken Thomas is a horrible fake. The latest part of the masquerade saga, the auction, had piqued the interest of journalist and newspaper proprietor Frank Branston, owner and founder of the paper Bedfordshire on Sunday. Right, one, I love him because <laughs> obviously Bedfordshire on Sunday is something I want to read. The only thing um, you two, read. Two, Branston. Uh, later, Mayor of Bedford. Oh, he was later on. on the Mayor of Bedford. Katie gets all her news from Bedford on Sunday. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's true. He was like, oh, what's going, hang on, what's happened here? He was like, obviously there's a bit of a story after the hair was found, something, his journo's nose got Mm. a sniff of something. He did a bit of digging and discovered that the owner of Hairsoft, the company that had gone bankrupt or needed to pay the loan, was a man called Dougald Thompson. Dougald's plural first name, always suspicious. Dougald Thompson. Oh, I thought you said Dougald's. The real name of Ken Thomas. Revealed at last! No! Dougal! Dougal Thompson. And behind Hairsoft was another company called Clayprint, under the directorship of a man called John Gard. At this point, he was like, something's... I need to go into this a bit, pull at some strings, see what... Emerges. Not Isaac Newton's string, someone else's. I exactly. Thought you said, I thought you said Pulitzer. Pulitzer some strings. <laughs> I don't think you'd win the, the Pulitzer for this. The Bedford Herald dreams of winning the Pulitzer Prize still. So, of course day. they do. Um, they have big aspirations. They're plucky in Bedford. 
so plucky. They've um, got a butterfly sanctuary. Don't put them down. Because he was, you know, a Bedfordshire man, he remembered when the hair was first found. So he thought back and he was like, well, I remember it was a bit weird. Like he wanted his voice disguised on this programme. He wore that weird big hat. He wouldn't show his face. So he thought something's obviously a bit strange going on. So Branson and a reporter colleague did a bit more digging, interviewed some people, wanted to find out what they could find out. And the Bedfordshire on Sunday was the first to carry the scoop. Yes, As it come always on. Is. It always Although, is. <laughs> the Sunday Times picked it up just days later to Please. national attention. Well, hang on, Bedfordshire on Sunday, Sunday Times, that's got to be seven days later. Seven days later. <laughs> that's true. You're right. You're right. So here's the scandal. Dougal Thompson, a.k.a. Ken Thomas, was nothing but a front man. No. A former associate of his. Savile. (laughs) (laughs) Savile's worst crime yet. (laughs) No, of course not. Um, Sorry, everyone. Um, (laughs) uh, A former associate, John Gard, the owner of this clay print mysterious company, was behind the whole scheme. Oh, John Gard, you see, in the early 1980s, was the boyfriend of a woman called Veronica Roberts. And before John Gard, Veronica Roberts had been in a relationship with none other than Kit Williams. No, she's what? A, what? She's worse than Lady Macbeth. She's betrayed everyone. She's actually, she's not the bad guy here, so I'll tell no, you a bit come on, more. But she's like given something away, hasn't she? <laughs> yeah. So um, Veronica Roberts had, had revealed to John Gard that while she was still in a relationship with Kit Williams in the late 70s, they'd gone on a bit of a strange picnic to Ampthill Park on the day of the summer equinox, picnicking at a very specific spot that Williams had insisted they sat at. And it was just at the point where the shadow of the cross, the monument, fell. And Williams later said it was on this day that he buried the magnet in the earth. The day that he had gone to pinpoint oh, where he exactly. trusted her because he's a lovely, kind genius. But he did say she didn't see me. He said, I'm sure she didn't see me burying the magnet, yeah, but, but she must have got an idea that something was up. So John Gard was like, well, this is no guarantee of anything, but this does sound a bit like maybe there's something to this. Yeah. So Gard teamed up with a friend called Eric Compton, who had some metal detecting equipment, and they made several trips under cover of darkness to search for the hair digging into different spots in the earth around where the picnicking had happened. Hang on, the hair has already been found. No, this is before. This is before, Rob. Sorry, we're in history. We're in history now. Because she had the relationship but in the late 70s. Yeah. And then she's told her new partner. In the early 80s. Her new partner's a horror. This is like Looper. Yeah. (laughs) What time are we in? We're in the past now. God, Jesus. Okay. So this is before. So they went to hunt for the hair around the vague kind of area where the picnic had taken so place. so spirited But Veronica Roberts, for her part, only went along with it because she was very into animal rights and she was a very strong believer in animal rights causes. She sounds a bit naive to me and, and he said, we'll, we'll sell it and we'll use all the money to put to animal rights charities. OK, I'm And this sorry. is the what only reason... imbecile is she? You find her an imbecile. Well, she's given away all lovely Kit Williams secrets. Yeah. And she clearly, this man is not selling it in America and like... Well, she also, didn't know she trusted him. But what? And Kit Williams himself She should have got said back together with on, Kit Williams and then given some money to He's got rights. a lovely wife now. Okay, but um, Kit Williams himself later said... 
he didn't blame her at all and he said she he was like she would have only gone along with it if she thought she had a really good reason to do this she wouldn't mm. have intended any harm to anybody so anyway she's a simpleton and he's been kind afterwards <laughs> it later emerged that that they'd made these various digging trips round exactly you know they didn't exactly mm. know they just were in the rough area on one of their trips guard and compton saw some newly disturbed earth near the monument. Neath, not Neath a cow pat. Ne- not of their doing. Uh, this was much later than cow pat time. Oh. This is the two nice physics teachers who we really like. Exactly. Oh. Russo and his friend. Oh, no way. Exactly. Yeah, Russo and his friend and they've given it away. They had been digging, but we know not quite in the right spot. So but they close. had... They dug, therefore they were. And then this... <laughs> <laughs> and then this, it seems... Forced the hand of John Guard, he was like, well, someone's onto this. We need to act now if we're going to claim the hair for our own. And at this point, he thought we need a plan to try and stake our claim to finding the hair. So he thought, I can't do it myself because it would be very easy for someone to discover this connection that I'm going out with someone that used to go out with Kit Williams. That's going to all unravel. So he brought in a, a sort of a friend associate, Dougal Thompson, and said, will you pretend, make up a fake name, you have to pretend you found this hair. Jesus Christ! <laughs> so Ken Thomas, a.k.a. Dougal Thompson, would be the public face of the scheme. They were like, we can just about, you know, we'll focus on this one of six to eight and we'll say that that was enough that we were able to locate the monument to Catherine of Aragon and enough for us to find the prize. Oh, what absolute horrors. Yes. So the story was out. Scandal. I mean, nothing illegal had happened. But, but, but it was certainly something, that they did it. Certainly something distressing had happened mm. and disappointing for all those people who had been searching. And those two physics lovely teachers that did it. Yeah, and... Think of poor Kit Williams. Yeah. He was distraught. Trusting, delightful, did something wonderful for the world and look what happened. He was devastated. He That's said why you he felt just stay at home eating pizza and playing video games, because let's face it, the world is not good. He mainly did do that, except he stayed in Gloucestershire painting and he oh. sort of disappeared from the public eye and he had said he felt tainted by the way that the story had come out. Wow. I Very... had no idea that it was going to end like this. Well, <sighs> Mr Williams, don't worry, we're coming and we're going to make things better. We'll bring you time beer. Yeah. The news was also distressing for physics teachers Mike Barker and John Rousseau. Had they been just a bit quicker, they would have found the hair if they'd only prepared their special implement mm. to identify where the shadow would have fallen. They would have been the rightful finders. I bet they would have let it be shown in the yeah, BNA. Of course they would. Yeah, of course. They later said it was not even that they weren't even that upset about losing out on the treasure. They just felt that they had spent so much time on the puzzle and that when they found the solution to the puzzle, they had been so, you know, it was so satisfying, everything fell into place mm. and that that hadn't been acknowledged and that somebody that had kind of just chanced upon the answer, even more so than they ever really appreciated. And it meant that all their puzzling mattered for nothing. Ah. So that's sad, isn't it? That is pretty sad. If the story ended there, it would be sad, wouldn't it? Oh, my God, thank (laughs) you! For another 30 years or so, Masquerade was again out of the news. The story starts up again in 2009. And this was... Where were we? Oh, nine. (laughs) Oh, nine. This was the 30-year anniversary of the publication of Masquerade. Kit Williams had been living a quiet life in Gloucestershire, working on his art, doing lots of paintings, not exhibiting, staying out of the limelight. But he was approached by various documentary makers as the 30th anniversary approached. 
wanting to revisit the story. One for a Radio 4 documentary. And this was actually made by Paul Slade, who wrote the very long article Mm. I've been referring to. And the other was for BBC4, and you can watch that one on iPlayer, should you wish. I recommend it. I I really do. Chris is saying it's not on the iPlayer. It's on YouTube, not the iPlayer. Sorry, BBC, but you should have put it on the iPlayer. Yeah, if you're not going to put stuff on there. We're going to YouTube. Pay for some more storage. I recommend them both. Um, The BBC4 documentary is called The Man Behind the Masquerade. It's very good. And it paints this picture of Kit Williams as an English eccentric. And he said that he did the documentary because he'd been approached by a lot of people wanting to go over the story of Masquerade. And for this one, they said, we actually want to look at what you've been doing since Masquerade. Mm. Um, So it shows a lot of his other artworks, which are quite a bit more erotic than Masquerade. (laughs) I felt like there was a a certain eroticism Uh, lacking in the original (laughs) So they're quite, they're they're a bit more erotic, but they still have that sort of pastoral. I find them a bit weird, to be honest, but they're kind of also... Nudity outside. Nudity all about the place. I think it's sort of tied in with the idea of nature as a kind of fecundity and um I suppose like prosperity and, May and festivals May, yeah. and yeah, exactly. and very much so repetition and new life and all that stuff. And what we see in the documentary is that he is about to embark on his first public exhibition of paintings in many, many, many years, in decades. And this is going to take place at the Portal Gallery again in London, which was where his work was Do you think he had it planned before the documentary? Mm, Let me think. It would be good if he was having a comeback generally. I think that the the impression I get was that the documentary makers spoke to him over quite a number of months and almost he changed his attitude to going back into public life Mm. as a result of working with the documentary makers. And he obviously approaches it with quite a lot of trepidation. Like, he's like, I'm not sure if this is really what I want to do, but I'm going to give it a try. Because the way that he'd sold his art previously was that he had, him and his wife had a kind of a list of people who'd bought art before or been interested. They would put all the art up around their house and they would invite people in to come and look at the art and then sell the art to people. Oh, so there was no, like, website or publicity or, like... Okay. So he'd really completely tried to go away from from the public realm and go into, you know... Be a, a not a hermit exactly, but much more self-contained. Oh, it's just so sad. Mm. Um, Bloody rotters. Fruity Kit Maltloaf. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so the documentary culminates with the private view or the opening night, if you like, of this exhibition at the Portal Gallery. Yeah, but then it's not a massive win, is it? If he's just done weird naked dormouse art. Many were invited, including Mike Barker and John Rousseau, ah, the men who good. had correctly solved the us puzzle. We are so Sorry, I yeah. feel like when yeah. you we're remember here, Mike Barker we're... and John Rousseau, <laughs> yeah. Barker couldn't make it, but Rousseau was like, okay, sounds interesting, I'll oh, go along. I kind of thought they were a couple and they lived together and they'd come no, together. No, no. One has to stay home to look after the child and the cat. I think they've got their, each has children of their own, different children. But, we, but maybe the children are friends. Mind, yeah. it doesn't matter. Puzzling pals. Yeah. yeah. John Rousseau was very glad he made it because a special exhibit was included at the opening night of the show. Oh, oh no, it's not them naked in nature. <laughs> the radio documentary, the BBC um, radio documentary, had been broadcast earlier in the year and this was heard by the granddaughter of the person who had bought the golden oh, the hair so many years the before. And they had persuaded, the granddaughter, she had persuaded, we should try and reunite Kit Williams with the hair. She said, he said he would love to see the hair again. Mm. 
we should try and reunite them. Wow. So the hare was sent to the UK from the Far East just for a short visit so that Kit Williams could see the hare again and the hare could be displayed at the opening night of his new exhibition. And so to the delight of all at the opening night, who had no idea that this was about to happen, Kit Williams knew, Mm. no one else knew, he removed like a fabric covering from a case and there was the golden hair. Oh, brilliant. Kit Williams said he was... He grew very emotional when he saw the hair again because not only was it... He hadn't seen it for years and years, something that he'd crafted, but just the whole this whole story around it had obviously for him been a really emotional... Mm. The ups and downs, the roller coaster of it. And for John Rousseau, he felt overwhelmed by the whole experience, he said. And he, he said, I haven't seen it before and it was something that we had spent so much time working on and to now see it actually in the flesh... He said it was just an overwhelming experience. The hair was was flown back to the Far East. But a final note that in 2012, the hair was loaned out once again so it could be shown at a design exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum. And at last, last, the public of Britain could see Mm. the beautiful golden hair amulet that so many people had obsessed over for so many years. And did we go to that? No, but we didn't know. We did not. Because like, we didn't coming care back a fig. We're going next time. I don't know if it's coming back. But that's the end we'll of the story. We'll ask Mr Williams when we visit him. So many ups and downs. Wow, that's great. This but is ultimately, I think, a, 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 like a uplifting ending. You definitely brought it back from the all-time low. Yeah, it got really low at one point, didn't it? Really sad. I still want more for the physics teachers, but we'll work on it. Maybe we could visit them when we visit Mr Williams. I would say so. I don't think they want us to come. We'll send them some time mead in the post, anonymously, just so it arrives. And we're all a new mystery to solve. Where's this come from? (laughs) But that's the story. What do you think? Brilliant story. A brilliant story. Loved it. it. Uh, yep, yeah, absolutely wonderful. I love the idea of the book. I love the illustrations. I mean, I don't love all of them. Uh, I love the ones with animals and the ones with people and scary and weird. I also, I would say that it contains a microcosm of some kind of modern phenomenon whereby there's this kind of like ancient beauty, woodland, hairs, mysticism, whatever, versus a kind of avarice, you know, a sort of mm. like modern thirst for gold and will saying that this is basically a book form of Blake's songs for innocence and experience say it again say songs it. for innocence and experience we've got by the, William Blake yes it, we've got the innocence of the country versus the horrible I don't know that thing city. but yes so you see it as I a I interrupted Rob sorry though no, but that was right. a slurred aside a sort of contradiction of two worlds or mm. a it's a clashing kind of, of two so like you were saying, you've got the lovely, lovely countryside and this beautiful artwork and this lovely person doing this amazing, creative, delightful thing, and then it's crushed by the horrible smog of the industrial city and the horrible people and everything. There's else. a kind of little princeness about it where yeah. there's a sort of innocent, brilliant genius yes. who has to confront the Songs horribleness of, of the world. Experience. It's yes, it's William Blake. I'm going to have to write. All I know about Blake is Tiger, Tiger. In the Burning night. Bright. In the cities of the night. Blake was an absolute visionary, actually. Mm. William Blake, yeah. He revolutionised print processing and all sorts of things. He was a genius. And his illustrations, are like yeah. with that kind of idea of framing and stuff. But I think Kit Williams would be very happy to be seen in the tradition of a 
British artists like William Blake. Also, let's just say, with most things like this, all of my knowledge of William Blake comes from a historical novel that I read where he was um, in the same street as a load of prostitutes in London and was really nice to them and it was written from their perspective. So most of my knowledge of history is based on a ridiculous trash. Well, novel. my knowledge but, of William Blake comes from doing an art history degree and which it is seems be, yes. like you're spot on. <laughs> well done, Katie. Thanks, Drew. So the moral Thanks. of the story is... One of the stories, if you try and do something beautiful, the there will, will be there it. will be people who will try and undermine it for their own gains. But in the end, the beauty and power of what you've done will win out. Yes! And Team Physics Teacher will get their reward. Yep. Well, they'll get to see the hair. <laughs> and the Victorian Albert Museum will display the hair for all to see. Yeah. Well, I think we'll end it there. That was wonderful. I think Thank thanks, so thanks for your drinks. They were brilliant. Thank you for joining us for this lovely story. Thank you for your. It was drink. a really interesting one, just a bit of something different for us. But I loved it. I, I really, really liked, and I, I really liked the fact it had a positive ending. I was scared. Yeah. yeah, I was scared too while I was doing the research. I was like, dear God, I don't know if Katie's going to be able to handle this. <laughs> but it all turned out okay. Maybe it's significant that avarice, the the deadly sin at the heart of the story, sounds a bit like Annika Annika Rice, <laughs> which is where we started. Annikaus. Annikaus. <laughs> Okay, thank you again, lovely guests. Thank you, listeners, for your lovely listening. Well, Rob's pointing I should thank Chris, but, you know. <laughs> we all thank Chris. We all, need any I thanks. mean, it's basically assumed. It's like sausage and AQA all in one. Whenever one's not sure. Um, I still think Iron Apps in Cyprus, by the way, but we're going to check afterwards. <laughs> we'll be back next time with more stories of intrigue from East Anglia. Thank you very much Possibly for listening. Possibly better geography knowledge. I can't guarantee it. <laughs> there it is, the full story of Masquerade. What a twisty, turny tale, can you believe it? I'm just interjecting at the end here to apologise to Katie and say, Ionapa is indeed in Cyprus. Katie, you were right and I was wrong. Thank you. We'll see you next time for some more stories from East Anglia. Goodbye.